Hello and welcome to Wild and Theology. My name is Will and this is my good friend and co-host, Kaylee. Hello. <laughs> so today we are talking to Ed Prideaux. So Ed works with what is called Hallucinogen Persisting Perception Disorder, or HPPD. And, you know, I, I was going to give a description of what this is, but I think given the, the nuance that this conversation requires, I'm going to allow Ed to, to really go d dive deeply into it because he raises a lot of issues that the clinical community and the popular culture has in interpreting what exactly this is. We're going to get really deep into this conversation. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, it was very informative. And it's really important to give a full account of both the benefits and the risks of using psychedelics. Absolutely. And like, we, if we really want these things to be used mm -hmm. uh, effectively, we need to have that full account. Yes. We can't have a simply one-sided thing or, you know, we even talk about the idea of kicking the can down the road of focusing on the positives now and dealing with any ne potential negatives down the road. Mm -hmm. That's not how we approach this. Mm -hmm. But that's enough waffling from the both of us. Uh, Ed does a much better job than we could of outlining the issues surrounding this. So if you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us at Wild and Theology on Twitter and Instagram. And you can find Ed at Ed Prideaux, P-R-I-D-E-A-U-X. We'll include that in the description. Yeah, definitely follow his research. What he's doing is really important for the psychedelic community. So if you care about psychedelics, which I'd hope you do if you're listening to this podcast, definitely check out his work. Yeah, enjoy. Well, thank you for being here today, Ed. And no worries. Thanks, thanks for having me on. Yeah. We're really excited to be talking with you about everything and just shedding some light on this issue that doesn't get spoken about enough when it comes to the use of psychedelics and education around them, especially as they become more mainstream and accessible. Precisely. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess to get started, would you be able to describe what HPPD is for our audience and give us a little bit of information about what your personal experience is like with it? Yeah, right? yeah. So... HPPD stands for Hallucinogen Persisting Perception Disorder. Uh, it's not necessarily the best name, but I'll, I'll, I'll park that for now. But it's basically an experience where people take uh, psychedelics, but it can also include other kinds of drugs, but we'll, we'll park that to the side for now as well. Yeah, people take psychedelics and then they notice that there are there have been lingering changes in their vision. Um, and these changes in visions seem to seem to be a basically a, a fairly stable, broad set of changes. Uh, and there can also be changes in cognition and mood. Um, but it's what tips something from just being a mere experience of changes to your vision is that these changes are debilitating, impairing, and provoking of distress, worry, and anxiety. I guess that's what makes HPPD matter as an issue because lots of people mm. might experience changes to their perception after taking psychedelics. I mean, if you go on uh, the subreddits for psychedelics, you'll see lots of people going, "Oh yeah, I, I see, I've, I've seen some 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 trippy stuff in my vision after taking acid, etc." But it doesn't bother me. But then, when you speak to people with full blown distressing HPPD, uh, it's a genuinely concerning mental health issue. Right. Um, so, what are the kinds of perceptual changes people report. So the main ones are, uh, there's a phenomenon called visual snow, 
which is basically when your visual field is basically is coated with basically like TV static, okay. like this kind of like fine layer of of particles, kind of f- like grayish, minute particles that kind of just soak your entire field of vision, and that can vary in intensity. I mean, for some people, it's like I mean, for some people, it's fairly mild how like, you kind of have to pay attention. You go, okay, I see it. I see the visual snow. For some people, it's compl- it's that these particles have utterly saturated their vision. Right. Um, another another experience people report is halos or auras, where around objects you'll have basically like a kind of a kind of like a bright light bordering the perimeters of the object. Uh, people experience after images where you look at an object and then you look away. And then basically a, a, a reproduction of the object, perhaps in a more ghostly, silvery, metallic, or maybe neon-coloured version of the objects lingers on in the air or on a surface. Mm-hmm. Uh, people can experience melting walls. You can see geometric patterns. Or people might have more specific reproductions of visuals they experience under the influence, which will vary from person to person depending on what they saw when they tripped. Um and then people also report cognitive changes, how in the, how kind of in a kind of one for one for you can experience trailing with HPPD in the same way people can report almost trailing of their cognition, how the cognition has become it almost like seems to jump as with their visuals. Uh, people will report experiences of dyslexia, uh, non-linear thinking, and and then with the distress and worry of HPPD. Uh, well, these visions can be kind of intrinsically distressing. Kind of, you've woken up from a trip. You had no idea this was possible, and it's now been three weeks, and you're still and you, and people will think, you know, I'm still tripping. What's happened? Which seems to be an intrinsically distressing for a lot of people. But for others, it's like in the same way that they've just woken up with lingering visions. It's like they've woken up and now they have an anxiety disorder and they don't really know why. Like I, I remember speaking to a guy called Mark, who I, um, whose experience I described in the article I wrote for my for Mad in America about HPPD, mm-hmm. and it's like f- for him, he said, you know, I don't know why I feel a constant sense of panic and dread and kind of hyper arousal and hyper stimulation. I haven't had any particular traumas in my life. It's not even as if the contents of my thoughts are, are particularly negative. I just feel like I'm on the constant verge of a panic attack for no reason. Mm-hmm. That's what he told me. Um, and then there have been some small surveys of HPPD patients about their about kind of what their distress presents as. And I think that the most striking thing I heard was that 69% of this sample of 25 HPPD patients had persistent suicidal thoughts. Uh, I know of several suicides in the HPPD world, people that have been driven to just complete exhaustion with life mm. by the intensity and persistency of these changes. I, mean, I heard of one guy who went to Switzerland and did the assisted suicide, which was a very, very sad case. Um, but then it's important, to, it's important, it's it's tragic, and it's important to emphasize, as I said at the beginning, that lingering perceptual changes doesn't mean HPPD. And lots of people can have an experience of what maybe began as HPPD, but they can kind of transition into a more generalized attitude of acceptance to to what's happened. And it doesn't need to be bad. So with my experience, I I would say I had HPPD for maybe three years. Uh, It was was strange how 
you know, I took LSD young, 17. The day after my fourth acid trip, I noticed things still weren't quite normal. Like I was still tripping, but that's maybe expected because I hadn't slept and LSD can have quite an extended duration. But then it came to the following Monday and I started noticing some other weird things. Mm -hmm. So the first thing I noticed was looking at the carpet on the Monday at high school and seeing what I would later learn was the visual snow, the TV static. And then over the course of the the following days and weeks, I started noticing more and more strange phenomena, uh, melting walls, the after images, the halos around objects, geometric patterns. And it's now been six years and I still get these visuals, uh, although they're nowhere near as intense as they were when they first came on. And I, and I think that the intensity of the visuals is, is quite clearly correlated with other factors like levels of stress, uh, levels of fatigue, levels of caffeination or whether you've taken a stimulant. So for me, my main triggers for the intensity of visuals now are the stress and fatigue. Now, basically, my vision is pretty normal. Like it maybe has a slight, maybe 10% saturation of, of a certain post-psychedelic weirdness. But then I, mean, I remember before Christmas, I had quite a stressful phone call. Mm-hmm. And I, I, and I have a kind of stress-related uh, like eczema. And I noticed that as well as just starting to scratch, uh, mm-hmm. I looked down at the floor and I started noticing these halos around objects. So that's what's taught me that my actually that my visions are stress related, uh, and then, and the final thing to emphasise is that HPPD seems to be strongly related to experiences of dissociation. Um, I, I saw one survey which found that ninety plus percent of HPPD patients report also depersonalization and derealization, which is basically. Uh, for any listeners that don't know, it's, it's essentially a feeling of complete separation from your own body, a feeling like you're stuck behind your eyes and you're looking out at the world like a kind of robot. And then the derealization is it's just this strange sense that the world around you isn't real and it's kind of like a video game. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just lo- it's just it feels just profoundly alien in a way that you can't describe. And, and for me, my experiences of, of uh, depersonalization, derealization, or DPDR have been probably the most distressing. And I still experience dissociative effects. And and these dissociative effects didn't seem to really take effect in my first two or three years of, in the three years I had HPPD, it was was something that came on later because I continued to experiment with psychedelics. Um, And it didn't make the visions of the HPPD worse. But what it did do, in particular, I think, an ego dissolution experience I had on LSD once, I think, basically kicked off this dissociation. Right. And I had a particular episode when I was 21 and coming to graduate from university, when I basically had a week straight of just like constant depersonalization and derealization. And that has been by far the most distressing symptom of whatever (laughs) happened with my Mm. psychedelic experiments so when you talk about the like derealization and depersonalization being like a distressing experience can you kind of speak to why that would be distressing because i think it's something that people like for me personally like i don't even know what that would feel like let alone why exactly that might be distressing 
Well, I guess it wasn't helped by the fact that I didn't necessarily know what was happening to me. And right. whilst I might have been aware, maybe just from prior reading that DPDR was a thing and that it was related to HPPD, I hadn't investigated it too much. So when it was kicking in, I didn't really know what was going on. And it seemed, well, I suppose I'll put it like this. The worst moment was when I had had a day of some quite striking DPDR. And I returned from a wine bar I went to with my sister and her girlfriend. And, and, and I had a glass of wine. And I think that really didn't help. And I came back to my parents' house. I looked over at my dad. And I was having quite intense visuals right. related to you know, my perceptual changes. And I looked over at my dad. And my dad, and I, and I really struggled to put it in words, but my dad did not seem remotely real. Everything he said didn't really make any intuitive sense in in the way that it didn't, like, whilst I could appreciate the logical kind of propositional content of his sentences, it didn't make any sense. It didn't connect with me in any deep embodied way. And and I'd look at the TV and, and it really didn't seem like any of the events of the news program we were watching were real in any sense. And then I looked down at my hands and I must have looked pretty weird because I was basically like doing this. And as well yeah. as my hands being basically coated in this like neon blue kind of like hue, they did not seem real. They did not seem connected to my body, my, my being in any way. And I basically had a full-blown anxiety attack. Mm-hmm. And I ran upstairs and locked myself in my room. And my visions were like ramped up big time. And I remember just sat there basically like hyperventilating, writing down my name, my age and my occupation, which was a student, and just basically reminding myself that I was a human being. And it was very, uh, very strange. And the fact that I couldn't tell my parents, or at least I felt I couldn't, because, you know, they don't know much about mental health in general. They don't know much about psychedelics. And they don't know much about these more extreme states of consciousness. And I didn't want to needlessly worry them. Mm -hmm. So I just didn't tell them. So it was just a feeling of kind of like complete isolation, I guess. Uh, and I really was quite rattled by that experience for some time. Yeah. And, you know, and, I was, and I was due to go on a meditation retreat uh, that summer. And this was maybe in April time. And I think I just immediately cancelled it. Yeah. Because I knew that I, I no way I could handle like intense daily meditation having gone through that. No kidding. Yeah, exactly. Well, there's two things that come up with that. The first one, I guess, is like, um, for the for the listeners, if they've ever seen or I recommend they watch uh, the TV sh- series Hannibal, uh, if you've seen that. And, I've not uh, seen it. You've not seen it. And the first season, essentially, one of the characters begins to to lose their mind. And they have a lot of very artistic visuals. And I, I feel like that's the closest thing that I can... Um, relate to and what that experience might be like. And, and you can confirm this where it's like, the, the issue is that like, you don't know if what you're presently experiencing is real because like that connection or that ability to interpret reality is real, is just lost, is gone. And so is there something you'd like to say about that or? I guess what comes up for me is that whilst it's hard to link it, because we can never, like take a step back from the contents of our own lives and take a truly objective scientific analysis of what caused what and why. But I would, but I do really think that this was related to 
having had like an ego dissolution experience at a young age when I wasn't necessarily prepared. Yeah. And, and I remember there's, there's this Vice article that made the rounds a few years ago, which was, you know, ego death is the high that every psychedelic user is chasing. And I was infected by that kind of mentality as well, that I thought, yeah. oh, you need, I, need to, I need to have an ego death. Like yeah. that, that's the sign I've really got to the, you know, the final level of psychedelia. And, you know, I did have it and it was blissful and it was a real peak experience, but you have to be kind of careful what you wish for, especially mm. when I, you know, I just, when you're, you, you're just 20, but you've barely got an ego to kill in the first place. And, you know, it's an extremely powerful psychological event and it can have consequences. And, and I feel like I'm still living with the consequences of that, of that ego dissolution to this day. Like I was just having coffee with my friend yesterday and I just kind of just, it's kind of just irritating, just feeling myself dissociate. Mm-hmm. And I'm still grateful I had that experience, but it's complicated. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's the second thing that came up before was that I've definitely fallen into the into the, the mindset of like, oh, ego death is the best thing. Like have this non-dual experience where like you become reality and stuff like this. And I've had that experience um, to a small degree, I guess. But when, you, when you're not ready for that, like you said, it can be extremely distressing and then there's the lingering effects. Um, and then, like you said, you, you cancel this meditation retreat where like these retreats are to kind of stimulate that experience or get deep into these meditative states. And so I guess the, the question that I kind of come to there is, have you continued your meditation practice and do you feel that that practice has allowed you to integrate that experience in a way where rather than jumping head first because of a psychedelic, you're going in slowly and learning to navigate these territories. Yeah, I have continued meditating. Uh, I've, been, I've had a meditation practice for, for, for years now. And, mm. and I feel like, you know, whilst it might have created a tendency towards dissociation, it's also meant that can I just having that very, you know, I, I don't want to presume what meditators experience because I'm not a particularly adept one, but, and mm. I feel like, being exposed at a young age to what to what spiritual states are possible has kind of it's allowed me to experience meditative states where the ego boundary is relaxed. I think possibly with more ease than many people. Like I, I have like quite frequently in in, med- in meditation, I can experience something that looks maybe a bit egoless, and it's not distressing. It's it's like it's it's nice, and you can kind of see and feel the truth of the Buddhist concept of no self, for example. Mm. But then the question is, how do you navigate these spaces skillfully? Right. So they aren't dissociative. And I feel like a good metaphor for dissociation, I read in an article on the Atlantic, which talked about the depersonalization, derealization disorder, which is that it's kind of, they compared it to enlightenment's arch nemesis. How like, it's almost, you get, you get the final hurdle of the ego and then mm. trip over it, and you're actually more trapped behind your ego than ever before. Right. Like you're completely retreated into the self. Yeah, it's kind of like, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Ken Wilber's work at all, um, but he kind of talks about like pre-egoic, egoic, and then trans-egoic, and, the, and that's kind of like the, dis- the distinction you're making here, where you get launched into the pre-egoic with dissociation, and then your ego tries to make sense of this chaotic experience, Whereas you kind of go into the trans-egoic experience of enlightenment, so to speak, and you bring your ego with you to be able to make sense of that rather than simply having it torn away from you, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah. 
I haven't read too much on Ken Wilber, but I've heard good things. And and I, and I particularly like his idea of the, what's it called? This particular fallacy that he coined. Pre-trans fallacy. Right. I yeah. think that, and I think that, that that has helped me to, that's helped to clarify my thinking in a, in a lot of ways. I mean, mm-hmm. all this stuff makes me think of Jung's idea about how people perhaps shouldn't pursue when the, in the Jungian schema, as far as I understand, he says that you shouldn't pursue the big S self until like middle age. And then yeah. I think about Hindu ideas about how you shouldn't pursue the spiritual life until maybe even retirement, become a sannyasin, and after you've built up your... So, so w- what do you think when young people take psychedelics and have spiritual experiences? Like, do you think that psychedelics almost should be reserved for the middle aged? should is it dangerous at all for anyone under like 25 to experiment with this stuff well being under 25 (laughs) i i I think hmm let me just think about that for a second i think there is a danger with young people exploring psychedelics before they've had like some education on their own self as like a spiritual being or just as like a, a self at all i don't know kind of like this idea of like ego death, like in how you said, like you at 20 or something, you barely even have like a, a sense of your ego mm. at all. So how can you kill it before it's even been developed or, you know, like that, that seems to cause more problems than good. If it, if all these like insights and experiences have nowhere to land or to, or in no way to be integrated, then it can very much cause more harm than good. So you definitely need some kind of framework set up before having these kinds of experiences, I think. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, it's it's always complicated because doing psychedelics young, although I think the 17, as I did, was always, always going to be too young, mm-hmm. uh, at least for, you know, some high school kid in England. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it's ever, ever a good idea, but yeah. I feel like it allow it. Well, that's a critical phase in life, right? Mm-hmm. When, when you're, when it's set, when you're, when it's 18 to 21 and, and it prevents, and, and I feel like, you know, I used once to go into finance and be a bond trader. And then, you know, you take, and then I took psychedelics and I completely lost interest in that. And I think that was probably a good thing mm-hmm. that I avoided the, the world of high finance. So in some sense, I think it can be good to just basically like, just hit control or delete on the shitty programs that you might have gone on. Yeah. It can save you a lot of wasted time. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah. I remember I had experience. And again, I was also a dumb teenager doing psychedelics when I definitely had no business doing it. And uh, I remember the the first experience I had, it was kind of like, I I feel like it was a transition period in my life where I went from this, you know, anxious, awkward kid to being more open and more like uh, interested in being social and this kind of thing. And so that was a very amazing experience for me. Um, but then I had this other experience where like, I, I saw the devil essentially standing over me as I was trying to sleep and that like scared me away from drugs. Right. And so you have these two completely different experiences where one was an amazing thing. And the other was like this terrifying thing that scared me away completely from this kind of thing, which may have been a good thing when you really think about it. Um, but the, the biggest thing that kind of comes to mind with that is the fact that, we need, we need people to be able to deal with traumatic experiences as soon as possible without the teaching of, that, of those skills being itself a trauma, right? And so it's like, I'm not too sure exactly what that might mean in practice, but 
I think the, the question comes when we talk about psychedelics and being able to use psychedelics before 25, let's say, is that it might be better to prepare our society more for these kinds of experiences, not necessarily specifically for them, but give them the kind of skills that if they were to buy it from a black market or buy it you know, legally, whatever the, the case may be in the future, they know how to deal with the traumas that do come up with it, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. And I, I think it this connects to the HPPD issue in a few ways. Like one is that whilst we're talking about quite esoteric topics, I think the HPPD shouldn't necessarily just be treated as, by well, HPPD and DPDR, at least for some people, shouldn't just be treated as this completely purely clinical issue. Like right. it does have a spiritual dimension. And in that respect, really representing my employer, the Perception Restoration Foundation, which mm. is like motivated to raise funds for studies and organize treatments. But at the mm. same time, I think as someone who is into his spirituality and his philosophy and his psychology, I do think that you can channel HPP, you can channel your HPPD and dissociative experiences in this more spiritual way. You know, not least since, but since certain abnormal visual experiences, just, just to focus on the visions, are reported by people who are like deep in the in the meditation train. Like mm. even you just go on Reddit or even like the more exotic subreddits like r slash kundalini, etc. I'm not, not into my kundalini yoga, but it was just mm. a kind of like on the line ethno, eth, ethnographic research I was doing. You, people report basically like HPPD right. from, for example, I, I heard of someone who developed basically full-blown HPPD after a meditation retreat. So it's clearly not just an issue of, of drugs. It's almost, like, it's almost like one of the risk factors for developing these changes is just an extreme experience, which needn't be through drugs. Like you can have psychedelic meditation, um, but putting that to one side, again, I think one of the core issues with with the HPPD issue, and this is something I experience and many others have, and it's what I go, it's something I go into in my article, is that I think that a lot of the distress around HPPD is basically a product of prohibition and our right. very strange societal attitudes towards drug taking and altered states. Like at, at the most surface level, like I could not, or at least I felt I could not tell anyone apart from a few friends about what was happening to me mm -hmm. because it was basically a problem born of illicit drug taking. Right. You know, I was still in school. Uh, I, I couldn't tell even like the teachers I really liked because they almost certainly would have told my head of year and then the, I would have been expelled. Right. So that would, that would have been very good for me. And it probably would have made my HPPD way worse. And even and even more broadly, I think that people have a reluctance to share just share their stories of, of extreme states of consciousness. Like even if they even if this wasn't through drugs, how can I tell? Like I, I'm not sure I could have told any teacher. You know, I'm having these strange visions. Like there, there's a stigma in society towards people who hear voices, for example. Right. And uh, I mean, I, I saw a survey which said that 30% of the population has at least intermittent experiences of hearing voices. So it's not necessarily an abnormal or a pathological phenomenon and it's just people don't talk about it because they don't want to because they don't want to be seen as crazy and then with drugs you have this automatic stigma towards extreme states plus our strange kind of victorian moralisms around drugs and then you throw in these specific propagandas about lsd and how you know you damaged your brain bro uh, yeah yeah, yeah you, 
people, a lot of HGPD patients internalize this quite toxic belief that they've, that they've given themselves brain damage. Uh, I've fried my brain. I mean, but at the same time, you know, some people do kind of find meaning through that idea because it's like, it's not a problem with them. They, it, it's a problem with what I did to my brain. So it's a way for them to understand their condition. But at the same time, I, I think that narrative is, is mostly harmful because it makes people feel like a freak. And it's kind of like related to the very common cultural meme of the acid casualty, which yeah. I don't think we've really, which I don't think the psychedelic culture in a way has truly grappled with. Because it's like, if you speak to anyone who's into psychedelics, or it seems that a lot of them, like they all have that one friend yeah. who, who went, who kind of lost it. And I, I think that they would be, it, it would be interesting to kind of research like and look deeply at what's happened to you know those people and then and it's and especially because in, in the minds of like the kind of more conservatively minded in society like their perception of psychedelics is like saturated with this idea of the acid casualty especially mm. pop culture figures like you know pink floyd's sid barrett the guy went crazy after taking lsd and i think that it creates a kind of problematic conversational dynamic because on the one hand it's like the psychedelic culture doesn't grapple with these cases at least not in too much depth, like they haven't really been researched. And on the other hand, it's kind of just, it's by the conservative anti-drug culture, it's just treated as, you know, LSD can make you crazy. But I think that there's an interesting middle ground to be seen where we actually look at the specifics of, you know, what can LSD do or what can psychedelics do in their extremes? Like what actually happened to Sid Barrett? Right. Like I'd be very curious, but this is, but this is a, this is a tangent. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, something something came up there for me where, you know, I, I grew up in, uh, you know, Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, where there's, you know, 30,000 people. And so it's a very small, conservative town in the middle of the prairies. And uh, there was this man who was, uh, he people refer to him as Acid Mike, right? And he was kind of this guy where, you know, he, he screwed his brain because of acid use. I just, I'm trying to think of all the things that I heard about this guy, like basically just that he was a weird guy, you know, he wore women's underwear, right? And so like, there's this whole character, this story around this person where there's a mixture of anti-drug paranoia, transphobia, like gender norms and stuff like this. And this is a human being who, assuming, let's say that he, he has experienced some sort of issues because of his acid use and nobody addresses him as a human who has these issues they address him as this sort of fictionalized character imbued with all of this kind of uh hate narrative because of what he's experienced and how he chooses to live his life right and so it's like how can we really begin to address the very real problems that people face because of these these drugs or these these medicines when there's all this narrative behind it right Mm. Yeah, it's so interesting because some if you look at the deeply at the story of Sid Barrow, which I have for years, I've been fascinated by the guy. One of the stories that's often circulated is that, you know, one of the first signs that Sid was going crazy was that he was dressing up in women's clothes. Yeah. And that's discussed by Roger Waters of Pink Floyd, is really losing it. But right, we today we just call that that seems like sort of classic transphobia. And yeah. it's it's also funny how so what, what the kind of the main story that's shared is that we knew Sid was really going crazy when he stand on stage playing one note over and over again. But then when you actually listen to how weird Pink Floyd's music was at the time in general, it's like, is it that yeah. weird? But, but anyway, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that 
to, to reconnect it to the HPPD issue, I think that one of the big problems is not only drug, not only culturally and how that's basically destroyed meaningful conversations around the costs of these drugs. It's also like the direct effect on the research. So you often see the, the story that, you know, psychedelics, we, could discover, we couldn't discover how amazing their therapeutic benefits are or maybe because the, the research was shut down uh, in the early 70s and it didn't reemerge till the late 90s and the 2000s, which is true. It also meant that we couldn't look more deeply at the research into its costs. Like, I, I think that if there hadn't been a shutdown, there would be a far more meaningful literature around a whole spectrum of possible side effects from using psychedelics. And, and HVPD is, is just one of them. And, mm. and, and HVPD, if you really look deeply at the concepts and read the papers, as I've tried to, it really wears its own neglect. I mean, kind of almost from the name outwards. So it's a kind of return to the points I alluded to at the, at the beginning. Like the, the concept of HPPD is that these, that you have persisting perceptions of hallucinogens. Right. So the idea, so to, to, to the psychiatrists who first started noticing people reporting perceptual changes after they'd taken LSD in the, in the, in the clinics, I mean, there was a particular psychiatrist, Dr. Henry Abraham, who first started documenting this phenomenon in Boston in the early 70s. His assumption, which might have been justified, was that people were still seeing the stuff they saw tripping, like the trip hadn't ended. Right. And that seems like a fair assumption. But then this thing called visual snow syndrome began emerging in the 90s, which is basically a condition where people report very similar, if not identical, visions and dissociation and anxiety and some of the bodily impacts, some of the cognitive impacts. You know, a lot of HVPD patients experience tinnitus, same with visual snow syndrome. And visual snow syndrome can just happen suddenly. It can happen through a brain injury. It can happen after a stroke. It can happen even after COVID. So it's not necessarily a drug disorder at all. So what we call HPPD, what they might have assumed was the visual hangover of an acid trip, is probably better characterized now for many people as like drug-induced visual snow syndrome. But then at the same time, HPPD is so wide-ranging that that won't cut it for everyone. Mm. And we need to kind of do proper research to see what the true breadth of the HPPD label can encompass. So I suspect that for the vast, for the majority, let's say, I'm reluctant to put percentages, but let's say for half or more of HPPD patients, they're, they're essentially experiencing basically drug-induced visual snow syndrome. But I think that HPPD being induced by a very powerful, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that very powerful visionary drugs can have impacts on people's visions. And I think that the limited data that's being gathered and the limited case reports that have been collated, it seems that HPPD patients do have a slightly more psychedelic flavor to what they see. So mm -hmm. it seems that HPPD patients, more than their visual snow syndrome counterparts, might see more melting walls. They might see more geometric patterning. And, and something I didn't mention, actually, is that HPPD is classed into two types. So type two is this persisting phenomenon, which is how the vast majority of people experience it. But there's also this type one phenomenon which is basically like the flashback, which is basically, yeah, the flashback idea. And that 
is completely different from visual snow syndrome. And then just to tie this loop on how on the problems with the HPPD idea, it's called hallucinogen persisting perception disorder. Okay. And and again, it might have been sensible at the time for these psychiatrists to have assumed that uh, this is purely a function of hallucinogens, right? You, you, you take LSD, you continue seeing what you saw in LSD, but no, you can have exactly the same visual symptoms from completely non-visionary drugs mm-hmm. like SSRIs. Like people can take an SSRI and maybe the day after taking their first dose or a few weeks in, they start noticing identical phenomenon, yeah. identical phenomena. People can even develop basically HPPD after taking amphetamines or antipsychotics like risperidone or all sorts of things, but these are all classed under HPPD. So the whole literature is very confused. And that's kind of why I wanted to take a break from journalism, at least to do real research on the condition, to kind of at least do a bit of a cleanup on how people understand it, because there's a lot of conceptual confusion. And I think that, again, this is a product of of prohibition, essentially. Mm -hmm. It's like the the anti-drug, anti-psychedelic voices, like they claim to care about people's minds, but they've shut down research and shut down people's willingness to come out and be subjects to research on their costs, if that makes sense. Yeah, I guess it it is pretty intuitive to see how people who have been against psychedelics could use HPPD against or as a reason not to use them. How has HPPD been stigmatized by people who are for the psychedelics, like the pro-psychedelic community? Right. I'll start with how I'm in something of a difficult position because I'm someone who is pro essentially at least to mainstream society pro psychedelic mm-hmm. so I, I i've been very careful in how i talk about hppd so as not to use my work on hppd as as an anti-psychedelic weapon and so that's why i talk about people who have perceptual changes that aren't distressing i want to give them a voice and so there's a risk that HPPD patients who who do hate psychedelics because of what's happened to them, there's a risk that they might feel minimized or stigmatized. And that's something I'm always trying to be conscious of, how I don't want to be seen to kind of like be throwing a bone to the psychedelic community and trying to be like, oh, don't hate us. We don't, don't, you know, we're we're not bad people. I I think that their stories speak for themselves. Mm. Um, But that aside, I haven't had any response like that, but it's something I'm conscious of. Probably the, the most, probably the least subtle way, let's say, in which HPPD has been stigmatized is uh, often just sheer denial that it exists. And this yeah. is something you often see from one of the old, from some of the more uh, old timey members of the community who are like, oh, I mean, I, I God, I, I see the same sort of responses like, huh, this is just dare propaganda. Uh, you know, this is just, this is, oh, the old flashback idea. Didn't they, didn't you learn that LSD isn't stored in your spine? Huh? Anti-drug, you're just an anti-drug propagandist. And I, th- and I think it's, I can sympathize with these people because they live through the worst of the excesses of the anti-LSD propaganda. And so when they see anything that even borders on the flashback idea, they'll be sensitive to it. And thankfully, I haven't seen any of that in perhaps let's say the more considered professional end of the psychedelic space 
like it's it, where you see it now is mainly on Facebook or Reddit and <laughs> yeah. kind of like in, in threads and comment sections. Like I, I remember something on HPPD and in the Joe Rogan subreddit because I thought you know people who like Joe Rogan like psychedelics they'll be interested in this and uh, no, uh, they, yeah. I got I, I got accused of peddling dare propaganda, which was a shame. And then I think that another stigma or it's it's more of a minimization than a stigma it's the idea that hppd doesn't matter because it's well one because it only occurs amongst illicit users is what you might see that Mm. but the fact that this hasn't been seen in clinical trials means at least yet means that basically in some sense the hppd the hppd patient community doesn't matter as much but I mean, I think that the, the extreme suffering that some people experience kind of speaks for itself. And, and the fact that the vast majority, all of the 99% of global psychedelic consumption each year is going to be, as they say, outside the lab. So it's not like these people don't matter. Mm-hmm. And then also that the idea that HPPD is, it's just extremely rare, is what I often see people say. Um, but on, on the one hand, I don't think it's rarity necessarily matters because the experiences of suffering people have can be so ext- can be so extreme that they lead people to kill themselves, which exactly. I've already mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, secondly, that if we are seeking to medicalize psychedelics and use these as psychiatric medical interventions, I think that clinicians and researchers especially have to follow their own rule, the Hippocratic Oath, which is, you know, first do no harm. Mm-hmm. Clinicians have to have a strong weight in favor of avoiding, let's say, negative clinical outcomes, especially since, you know, people the, the, the inside outside the lab distinction is, is always going to be a fuzzy one because they're, they're deeply interconnected. The only reason why there's, well, one of the main reasons why there's so much appetite and money and enthusiasm around psychedelic research is because of the media. Mm-hmm. And the media is precisely the organism that encourages people a lot. You know, many of the psychedelic researchers are interested in the topic because they had outside the lab experiences. Right. Uh, so the, the two the two streams really aren't too distinct. And then thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, HPPD isn't necessarily that rare. I mean, from my conversations with people in the psychedelic community, first off, basically the majority of people I've spoken to report some kind of lingering perceptual weirdness, maybe fleetingly, maybe just a few times, maybe once in a while, but they still experience stuff. And that's, and as I said, that's not necessarily bad. That can be fine. It's not necessarily HPPD, but it's mm. suggestive that changes to perception aren't out of the ordinary. They actually might be quite ordinary. But then on HPPD specifically, the distressing diagnostic changed perception I would point to a 2011 survey that was held by Erowid, and there are certain methodological problems with this survey, but I think nonetheless. And basically, in from 2,700 psychedelic users, 25% reported that some feature of their vision had been permanently altered. Uh, and then one in 25 from this sample of 2,700 psychedelic users found that their permanent change in vision was so distressing they were seeking clinical help, which is suggestive not just of HPPD, but actually of quite a severe form of HPPD. Because no matter how, I mean, even at my worst with my HPPD, 
I wasn't I I didn't want to go and see a doctor mm. I just I well I wasn't interested in going on, on any psych meds so you know one in 25 is actually pretty high and I'm sure that as that if and when more research is held on the kind of epidemiology of HPPD uh, its prevalence the figure will probably will probably be lower but you know if it's anything even close to one in 25 that shows it's really not a marginal issue uh, another data point is just if you go online, Reddit, Facebook, TikTok, uh, thousands of people report this. Mm-hmm. Um, especially TikTok's a very interesting one because it's, it's not a platform I go on a lot. But if you look up HPPD, you'll see just dozens of videos of influencers saying, you know, I took acid when I was 15. I'm still stuck in a trip. You know, and whilst their messaging might not be technically accurate, it still mm-hmm. speaks to the distress they're experiencing. And if you go on the comments, hundreds of people yeah i've had the same thing i'm really i'm really scared i've been stuck in a trip for the last two months um quickly to finish off this where the psychedelic community might not be addressing the issue in the in the most appropriate way is some researchers are aware of the conceptual problems i've already discussed mm-hmm. that hppd is a fraught convoluted quite misframed idea and the way they express that and the way and the conclusion they draw is that the HPPD label might be problematic, but it's a label for extremely real experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I point to a, a Krebs and Johansson paper, which is it was it was the longitudinal population study, which people cite a lot, which says that lifetime use of psychedelics has no correlation with mental health problems. And there are certain I mean, there, there are flaws with that with that paper that I've read. But I'll put those to one side for a moment. What Krebs and Johansson say in the paper is, you know, they have a brief section on HPPD and they say, you know, well, what are this condition? And they say there have been no cases ever because it does not exist. I mean, I mean, what, what's, what, what's an appropriate analogy? Let's say, um, well, let, let's think about how people in the past might have might have framed psychiatric disorders. Let's say how people in the past used to define uh, schizophrenia. They used to call it dementia praecox. And it's now evolved into the probably more subtle, uh, informed diagnosis of schizophrenia. I mean, we could say, if I just went dementia, I mean, have there, ever, have there been any cases of dementia praecox? No, the condition does not exist. That would make a subtle error because people, were exper- people had very real experiences that might plausibly have been classed under dementia praecox but we now know to diagnose them as having schizophrenia. And I think that HPPD will be thought of in a similar way. I don't know, I don't know what it will be called in the future. I don't know what the clinical implications will be in the future as more research is done. But these experiences are real and they're mm-hmm. reported by many thousands of people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like <laughs> what comes to mind is just like, you know, it's 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 kind of that that sense making conversation that Rebel Wisdom always talks about, and you know, Daniel Schmachtenberger always talks about sense making right. and this kind of thing. And it's, you know, when you say the 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 the, the stat one out of twenty five, it's like even as somebody who's who's trained in statistics, it's like, oh well, that's not that high. But when you really think about it, like one in twenty five people is still one in twenty five people who are legitimately suffering. And for whatever reason the the suffering may be arising out of, that's still very real suffering that we need to take seriously. And when you know you talk about like posting on on the Joe Rogan forum uh, subreddit or any other subreddit, and 
the the polarization that you see where it's like either you are completely for psychedelics or you're completely against psychedelics and any sort of gray area where we're just talking about some of the issues that can arise is just completely perceived as the opposite side that's not helping the people who are really suffering and then when you come to the scientific community who's supposed to be kind of our our, our sense-making apparatus of what is true they can't even agree on the definition and their issues with definition causes them to say, oh, that doesn't actually exist, right? And so it's like this very real problem where we're sweeping suffering under the rug because it doesn't look good or because there's polarization or for whatever the reason you have. And it's like, how do you deal with very real human beings who are suffering if you're not even willing to simply look at the data with anything resembling empathy? Right. I completely agree with everything you say. And I mean, just think about, imagine if there was a, a mass clinical trial of 2,700 psychedelic patients for treatment-resistant depression, and one in 25 reported debilitating, life-ruining HVPD. I mean, uh, uh, what phase would this trial be abandoned, I wonder? Uh, phase one, phase two? I mean, I don't think it would reach completion. Uh, and, and the fact that psychedelics are subject to this and, and the fact that HVPD is so mysterious, and we don't necessarily know its risk factors. Uh, we have, you know, we have some vague idea of what it might be, which perhaps we can talk about later. But you know, clinical trials are very sensitive to these extreme events, and that's why I'm concerned about the HPPD problem, because if it flared up, it could bring down a trial. I, I don't want to be too dramatic, but you know, imagine in you know, globally, a lot of the psychedelic trials are being held, and let's say you had one, two, three, four, five people who now report distressing HPPD and God, one person commits suicide. I think that, that could deal some serious damage to the, the credibility of psychedelic medicine. Yeah. Cause what I want to say is that like, there, there, there's always going to be some people who are harmed by some sort of medicine. And the, the, the answer to that is not to simply say like, Oh, well, they're, they're a statistic, you know, fuck them. Basically the answer is to say, okay, let's, study this medicine, let's get a good understanding of when it can work and when it can't, and do so so that when it does go wrong, we can find treatment options or some sort of response to help that person come back to a, a, a state of normalcy, I suppose. And I guess that kind of comes to what you, you just mentioned, like what are the risk factors that you've identified for HPPD? And like, what are some of the things that we can do to mitigate those factors? So the first thing is that we don't really know with much certainty, mm -hmm. uh, but a good paper that I'll reference first is one by Torsten Passy and John Halper from 2016, which interviewed 26 HPPD patients. And they found that a lot of them developed their HPPD after traumatic or at least challenging psychedelic experiences or, or bad trips. And that would suggest that basic psychedelic care, the bread and butter things you can put in place to make sure you don't have a bad trip. I mean, there's no harm There's no harm in doing that anyway, but if you want to avoid HVPD specifically, I think that would help. They also identified that many of these people had already had some experience in the past before they ever took drugs of some kind of anomalous sensory experience. Specifically, okay. they had seen, perhaps, perhaps they'd already noticed visual snow in their vision growing up, I mean, for me, I started noticing around the age of 13 that when the lights were off in my room and I looked at the ceiling, I'd see flashes of purple. And when I look back, I think, 
oh, damn, so maybe there was a tendency that the psychedelic then just, you know, absolutely ramped up, uh, kind of just activated some latent tendency in my perceptual system for these kind of like these noisy sort of experiences. And something that the, the foundation I work with is, is working on with the University of Melbourne is a psychophysics tool where basically people can take a, a test and work out if they are experiencing these unusual visual phenomena, perhaps in ways they aren't noticing, and therefore whether they may be at risk if they decide to take psychedelics of developing lingering perceptual changes or HPPD. Another thing that I have a strong suspicion about, which hasn't been researched, but it seems to make sense with my experience and the experiences of other people, is that anxiety before and after experience. So, and I think that the, the critical win. I think there's there's a critical window, one to three days after a trip, that I think you need to pay very special attention to, both in general and in particular for HPPD. And I think that one major factor is stress and anxiety in the one to three days afterwards. So for me, I on that acid trip, as well as it being a pretty terrible trip, I was caught the next day by my parents on and I'd still and I hadn't slept whatsoever. So I was still basically tripping. Mm. And they caught me and I and I received the biggest telling off of my entire life. Uh, and they threatened to call the police. Oh, uh, so that's not necessarily what you want to hear when yeah. you're in that very suggestible, funky headspace, let's say. So and then didn't do any integration, didn't even know that integration was a thing back then. So that didn't help. And then just, you know, Monday, oh, I'm back at school. Um, yeah. So basically, I think that having, taking real care in that in that critical period, one to three days afterwards, is crucial. And something I didn't mention, or I didn't emphasize enough, perhaps, is sleep. I did not sleep at all after that acid trip. I think I, I took it too late because I took it at, what, six in the evening? Whereas it's, it's generally recommended you take it earlier in the day, especially with LSD, because it's so long lasting. So mm. I didn't sleep one wink. And, I, you know, we're learning more and more about just how crucial sleep is for the health of your cognition and mood and, and general health. And I hear a lot of stories about how people develop their HPPD. For example, at a festival where you're barely sleeping, you're taking a lot of drugs and you perhaps took a drug at just the wrong time with, your, with, a, with a disrupted sleep cycle. And that mm. just can't help. So I think that if someone was, wants to be really careful with, their, with in avoiding HPPD or lingering perceptual changes, is to almost like just bracket out the three days after the trip to just really avoid any and all un, un, unnecessary stress. Make sure to be very careful in integration. Make sure to be very careful with your diet, drinking enough water, um, sleeping well. And whilst that might seem like quite mundane advice, I think that at least... I want to emphasize that critical window because I really think it does matter because it seems that, you know, I was recently reading an article on, on the psychedelic science review, um, the magazine, and it talked about, and it, and it was based on an LSD study and it found that around 15% of the trial participants noticed in the two hours after the experience that they had some lingering perceptual changes. And I wonder whether if this wasn't in a trial setting, if this had been people outside the lab, so to speak, those changes would have continued if they hadn't had that kind of trial-based aftercare, whether they hadn't been looked after, uh, whether they hadn't been, yeah, as I say, if, if this is just, and I think that LSD in particular 
seems to be quite a strong risk factor for HPPD. It seems to occur at least way more than psilocybin. And mm. whether that's because LSD just happens to be the recreational psychedelic, uh, whether it's because of the sheer length. So an interesting explanation I've seen about why LSD seems to promote HPPD or lingering perceptual change is because it's it provides such a long and intense experience to kind of reprogram your vision. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're, you know, with the, the psychedelic, it disrupts your cognitive, it disrupts your cognitive priors and it also obviously disrupts your perceptual priors. And so in that state of, uh, you know, deep neuroplasticity and perceptual suggestibility, the kind of chaotic brain, I think that there might be an explanation for HPPD to be found in how, in that experience, you're basically like training your brain to see in a kind of right. hallucinatory way. And LSD just at least provides a far longer window in which to do that. Especially, I think, probably, especially, I think, on the come down, because the come down is often like, you know, hours. And I think there's something to a kind of analogy where HPPD might be explained as a kind of like blending of the psychedelic consciousness with the sober consciousness. Mm-hmm. And so to return to that critical window idea, it's like if you don't ex- execute your re-entry well in that creat- in that critical window, it's it's like rather than there being a, a, a clean landing back into sober consciousness, there can be lingering effects. And so with LSD, with the come down of LSD, I feel like the, the blending's already taking place, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Um, so that's why you've got to be extra careful. Final thing probably wouldn't smoke weed in the one to three days afterwards seems yeah. cannabis is a risk factor mm. yeah well I, I just want to say like when i when i did see the devils standing over me i had smoked weed at the same time and so there's definitely some some interaction going on there um but one thing that kind of came up is that you know i don't know if this is the exact mechanism obviously but it kind of almost sounds like you're saying there's like a a resetting of of kind of visual homeostasis where your mind is like has a new set point for like what is normal vision because of the experience on LSD and I don't again I don't know the actual uh, neurological mechanism involved in that but I don't really know if there's a question there there's just kind of a, a speculation a thought on my part I mean there are a lot of I mean there are a lot of metaphors and analogies and yeah conceptual and conceptual ways of understanding basically the same phenomenon but exactly i mean for, for, for example one way to look at it and the one way i've seen interpreted for hppd is is the like the bayesian brain idea how your cognition how your sensory system runs on kind of certain pre-existing categories and what psychedelics mm-hmm. do is they just shake up those categories like a snow globe and that's what hppd could be like the snow doesn't quite settle back to the ground with your perceptual categories it kind of sticks to the surface of the globe in perhaps an unwanted and distressing way and i think that also speaks to how hppd it can kind of it's like there are numerous axes i think for hppd you have the perceptual which is the most explicit one which is the most explicit axis for the hppd experience and then you have the cognitive and the emotional i suspect and and people will experience different flavors of their hppd depending on how all their priors had been disrupted. So some people might have the visuals and now they just have an anxiety disorder for some reason. And some people might just have pure visuals. And I think that there'll be a whole spectrum of different ways in which these different priors have been disrupted. And they'll probably be interconnected in certain interesting ways, especially since, you know, as once the HPPD is already kicked in, like anxiety seems to be a big uh, trigger 
so that so that suggests a kind of a kind of link between the cognitive the emotional and the perceptual mm-hmm. i guess i guess you mentioned integration and just to talk about that yeah. a bit more because it's really important and you're saying like there's this three-day period that you think is like really important but like i guess more concrete examples of like what does integration like look like for you and what would be helpful that in that period right yeah yeah you know it's an, it's an interesting one integration because mm-hmm. it seems that it's become something of a buzzword and so mm-hmm. i use the, the phrase integration reluctantly but i guess for me it's and i'm not sure how applicable this will be for hppd but it just wouldn't hurt to do it anyway after a psychedelic experience is like bread and butter things like journaling or uh, making sure to lay out plans of action if you had certain insights. So the so the, the lessons you've learned from the psychedelic experience don't simply just get, get lost in the wind, so to speak. And I do wonder whether there might be deep mechanisms at play between like something that might seem completely unrelated to HPPD, like, oh, let's putting in a lesson I'd learned from the psychedelic experience. I think it might be related to the extent that well, all these systems are interconnected, right? And so if you haven't put into place and externalized and attempted to make meaning of just a psychedelic experience in general, it doesn't seem implausible that certain hangovers of the psychedelic experience could linger if you don't integrate. And that might just express itself mm-hmm. in the perceptual changes, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So you mm-hmm. kind of, you, you've had this, this big hammer blow to the system and and I and I do suspect that if you just don't kind of attend to your the, the resets in your mind in general, it can still exp- as I said it can still just express itself in chaotic ways you don't necessarily anticipate. Yeah, I mean I, I think there's something to be said of the the your ability to make sense of things around you and be able to just like create a narrative and like bring it back into your reality and how like like for example expressive writing for for traumatic experiences simply writing about the trauma can be a, a good way of simply letting it go and it's not like you've come up with a series of action steps or or things like this to deal with that trauma it's just like the act of writing about it serves some sort of integrative mechanism so to speak where it just allows you to deal with it Right. And so this kind of speaks to what you're saying. It's just like trying to make sense of it, just trying to put it into words and articulate it may be the thing that's separating a lot of people from actually experiencing something like HPPD or any other sort of issue that might arise. Right. And at a more surface level, like remember the distinction between HPPD and perceptual changes is the distress. Yeah. And I think there's, there's a more clear through line from proper integration to avoiding distress. And especially if you've had something of a bad trip, like it's not going to help if you just try and go back to normal life straight away. Like you've had a certain, at least partially traumatic experience, you should probably deal with it. Uh, and, and I think that drawing a meaning making framework is useful, even like as a way of, of, even if the perceptual changes have kicked in, even if you had integrated in those one to three days, but the perceptual changes still appear, like it's almost like, in avoiding the distress of the perceptual changes once they first appeared, I think meaning making can be quite a useful way of avoiding the distress. How lots of people have basically transitioned away from distressing HPPD and just learned to live with their perceptual changes through just through reinterpretation and reframing. Mm-hmm. So, for example, some people, especially those I anticipate who have had basically pretty good trips and enjoy psychedelics, they've gone from the oh god, 
I fried my brain internal narrative to, hey, I just basically get to have free trips sometimes. <laughs> uh, I, I'm still kind of tripping, which is which is cool. Yeah. Um, which I think is fine. Like it might seem like quite freaky to the conservatively minded that someone might be happy mm. with in their mind still tripping a bit, but I think that's that's fine. Uh, so, some people might reframe it in a more spiritual way, like or, seeing auras is already a, a thing that mm. people report, and some people are like when they f- see what I described earlier as uh, the kind of halos around objects, or it is often called auras. They're like, yeah, I'm I'm seeing a, a kind of a mystic phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was talking to an HPPG patient on Twitter earlier today, actually, and he was telling me that lots of people have learned to almost work with their visual snow in a kind of like, in quite a mystic way as well, how they've leaned into their capacity for, for abnormal vision. It almost acts to see entities in the visual snow. Mm-hmm. So visualization meditation is, is quite an intriguing practice. And, and they basically use visualization meditation with the particles they see in the air to maybe see faces, see entities. And they use that for like for occult practice. Uh, and that's something I've not tried. And I don't think my visual snow is anywhere near strong or visible enough to do that myself. But I don't think we should. I mean, even if it seems freaky that they've basically used their HPPD symptoms, if, they, if they've reframed HPPD symptoms as like a way of realizing occult phenomena i think that that's uh, kind of cool <laughs> yeah yeah exactly well that kind of brings me brings us to this question you know how can we we change the 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 language or narrative around this like not only as people who are experiencing this but as people within the psychedelic community to like to make it something that we can talk about and deal with as a problem but also talk about and deal with it so that we're not creating like turning it into a problem if that makes sense Right. Yeah, I completely, I completely agree with that final point. Well, I guess the first thing is that I hope that my emphasis on drawing a distinction between perceptual changes in general and HPPD will catch on. Mm. Uh, because it, you, you see a lot of people in online forums say, oh, I enjoy my HPPD. Mm. And if we take the diagnostic definition of HPPD as a distressing disorder seriously, that that is just it doesn't make conceptual sense and it needlessly confuses things. And as you say, people can loop themselves into distress. How it, someone might be experiencing abnormal perceptual phenomena, but if there isn't a suitable narrative out there of people describing perceptual changes that aren't distressing, they might basically automatically think that this has to be distressing. So I, I hope I'd hope for there to be more openness from people in the mm-hmm. psychedelic community about the abnormal perceptual phenomena they've experienced after taking psychedelics. And I guess one major kind of conversational obstacle in that respect is that I think people have been historically reluctant to talk about that for fear of basically indulging what they see as a kind of like flashback idea, because that's obviously been uh, quite an influential propaganda technique against LSD and psychedelics is that it's the flashback. But you know, if it's if it's not a problem for you, then it's not a problem. I just I think that it'd just be it'd be cool to talk about it. Not not least since basically neither being good nor bad, it depends on the person. Like lingering perceptual changes can for some people actually be good and useful. Like I mentioned earlier, the people who like just generally enjoy the aesthetic properties of their visions. And for some people, myself included at points, it's almost like a constant reminder of what the psychedelic state was for me. 
Mm-hmm. It's like my psychedelic trips have basically been pretty positive and they've held certain lessons. And so it's almost like the lingering visions are a little reminder of what that meant. And a, a kind of emphasis for me on not losing track of what those experiences were. Mm-hmm. So there are all sorts of ways of interpreting these perceptual changes. They don't have to be pathological. So, so yeah, more, more general openness on experiencing perceptual changes and and making sure not to confuse HPPD and changes in general. And I guess the other thing is just, it's, it's just gonna, it's gonna have to be just a, a matter of sheer time because mm-hmm. at the moment it seems that the research is all focused on the therapeutic properties for depression, you know, anxiety, PTSD, et cetera. And it's to be expected that that will be the research focus right now because they're, they're having to build the, the credibility of psychedelics as mental health treatments. And, and, and it's kind of like once they've been established, then we can look at their risks. But I think that whilst it's fine that like the therapeutic benefits, the main focus, I think that it needs to be matched by more research now right. in order that certain problems aren't just kind of kicked as a can down the road, not least because it's it's all moving so fast. You know, when you, when you listen to podcasts with these like psychedelic elders, so to speak, they're all just see, they all just seem to be bewildered by yeah. how fast it's moving. And an issue that kind of connects all of these points is that HVPD, there is a risk that it can be weaponized by people who aren't fans of psychedelics. And it so easily could have been that, you know, that, that I think there was always going to be someone who came out and emphasized HVPD. It just happened to be me. Mm-hmm. And I so easily could have been someone who had an agenda against psychedelics because it, it easily could have been that I never experimented again after that fourth acid trip and just hated them. I thought, you know, they, they fucked my life up. I'm still living with these visions. Uh, how could we be saying they're safe? They ruined my life for years. And I think that there's still this risk of weaponization. Yeah. You know, I can easily imagine a Daily Mail article that kind of maybe some Daily Mail journalists or some New York Post journalist comes across my Twitter page or some article or some research paper and goes, the people who take acid never stop tripping. Mm-hmm. Like, so it's important to own the issue before it's owned by someone else. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's exactly. a constant, constant risk. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for approaching this with nuance. The, the fact that you're putting in the, all this effort to like to make sense of this for people and not alienating or demonizing any side of the argument is really special that we have someone like you doing this. So thank you. Oh, wow. I'm glad you. I'm glad you've noticed the subtlety I'm, I'm hoping to bring to the conversation. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Actually, I was wondering, at what point were you able to reintegrate using psychedelics into your life? Ooh. Well, it depends how you define psychedelic, to be honest, because edibles can be pretty psychedelic. <laughs> uh, and so, so for about six months after I developed the HPPD after that acid trip, I was basically completely sober. And then I got curious about edibles tried them a few times then I smoked weed and I had an extremely bad experience and yeah. I thought whoa no way I'm touching any drugs ever again and then a year after that after a year of basically sobriety this is when I was at university I uh, just got curious again you know I realized that there was more to be explored you know because my my trips were, were pretty good at school I mean a couple of what well, a couple of trips that were basically not that fun you know my first acid trip was actually quite boring i'm not sure if you've ever experienced that you know there's a sam harris quote that he said you know if you take 100 micrograms of lsd there's one guarantee that it won't be boring 
I think that's wrong. I was bored. <laughs> I was yeah, bored. Yeah. Uh, but okay, anyway. So I knew there was more to explore, and I and I've always been a fan of 1960s music, and so just you could only hear Jimi Hendrix or the Beatles so many times and not wonder, you know, would it be great to just listen to this tripping? Right. <laughs> so right, yes, second year of university, just ordered some tabs of acid, uh, and that was actually a, not a great trip. So, yeah. but I decided anyway to carry on exploring. Then at university, I was like, oh, okay, this is why people love psychedelics so much. Because yeah. they were just extraordinary, they were just extraordinary, mm. uh, those trips. And it was amazing to see how much better it was to do it a bit older and a bit more mature. Yeah. Like the difference between tripping at 17 versus 20 is like exponential. And then I last took it, and and thankfully my visuals from the from the, the perceptual changes didn't increase at all. And I didn't take psychedelics for two and a half years and then in september got curious again and i took lsd and 23 versus 20 is also a huge gap like that was much easier to handle and that was a pretty good trip yeah so yeah, yeah. well yeah that, that is an interesting thing is would the use of psychedelics be a potential like again be a potential treatment option for hppd right. like kind of turning the, the 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 button on and off again kind of thing but i don't know yeah you're right yeah. yeah, you are right. That's something I didn't mention, actually. I forgot. Lots of people report. Actually, I don't want to say lots. Some people on Reddit have yeah. reported that a whole mixture of substances has basically just eradicated their HPPD. Really? Uh, LSD, psilocybin, GMT, ketamine. You know, they just take it and it's just gone. And I yeah. think precisely the way of explaining that is whilst that HPPD triggering trip shook the snow globe and left some of the old snowflakes stuck to the glass. When you take it again and shake it up again, it floats back down to the bottom. And even then, whilst you might not necessarily get rid of perceptual changes, you can, I think there's there's almost certainly the distress and your relationship with these perceptual changes. For example, I can, I can easily imagine someone who just can't stop thinking about and obsessing on what they're seeing. And it's just really imprisoning them. And so they're in a state of just extreme cognitive inflexibility. And then they have, for example, a trip on LSD or psilocybin, and they just learn, like, oh, okay, maybe it's a fine to see weird stuff. Maybe it doesn't have to be bad. You know, they reframe it, and they come down, and they might still be seeing weird stuff, but it doesn't matter for them anymore. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, a psychedelics like depression, but they can relieve depression. They can cause it. They can cause HPPD, but also relieve it. So they are a truly mysterious set of compounds. Clearly, yeah. Again, it just speaks to, to what we said before. It's just like, it's a very nuanced issue. Like when the, when the thing that seems to be causing the issue can be the treatment for it for some people, it, it just, there's more nuance and more research has to be done. Really, it's all you can right. say. Yeah. Right. Something fascinating I was looking at today was actually looking more deeply at, well, this isn't related to HPD, but I think it's related a bit, but it, and it's interesting, is the relationship between LSD and schizophrenia. I found quite a few reports on Reddit of people with schizophrenia who've taken LSD and report that it's really helped them. Like I read one case of a guy who gave his dad, in in his description, 10 tabs of LSD. Okay. And, okay. and his dad smoked DMT at the peak. And this was like a, a guy in his 70s and he had schizophrenia for decades. And after that pretty world ride, he woke up. <laughs> And he doesn't have it anymore. 
So I think we're only scratching the surface of what psychedelics can do. That, I'm honestly speechless. That is a crazy story. That's that's wild. What the fuck? Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's exciting. Like, it, it, it's really exciting what we're going to be seeing. And, like, the, the fact that it is so exciting speaks to why we need to be uh, very conscious and, and just comprehensive in our analysis because there's really good things that can happen yeah. with this but like you said we don't want to kick the can down the road because those are people we're kicking down the road it's not simply the can right and so yeah that, i guess that's my point it's just like th there's really good things to come if, if we if we do our due diligence yes yes but as a word of warning to any listeners with schizophrenia do not take <laughs> 10 tabs of acid and dmt at the peak <laughs> i think yeah just to to issue that caveat like if you're experiencing issues, if you're experiencing HPPD, maybe do it in a, in a clinical setting if you have that option. That would be the better idea. Yeah, 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 probably. Probably, yeah, exactly. So uh, as we reach the end of the podcast here, is there anything you feel we should cover before we end things? Or Yeah, yeah, uh, just, just one thing, really. So I'm speaking as someone who works for a charity that was that kind of emerged from the HPPD community called the Perception Restoration Foundation that uh, is has raised funds for two main studies right uh, into HPPD and it's raising funds for, for other studies. Two studies that the two study streams are one through Macquarie University in Australia, which will do basically the, the, the deepest ever neuroimaging on HPPD patients for, for decades to see if there's a kind of consistent systematizable difference but in HPPD patients' brains. So I think that could be very intriguing. Uh, the other one's through the University of Melbourne, which is the psychophysics tool I described earlier. And kind of in the pipeline, there are plans for genetic tests. We're very curious whether there is a describable genetic susceptibility to developing HPPD that's kind of activated, maybe through the psychedelic. And then further down the line, there are plans to build a, a huge database of HPV patients' experiences, because at the moment the, the research base is basically consigned to handfuls of case reports and some fairly questionable, you know, survey studies. But we hope to have a big data set, hopefully draw some patterns in what people experience and the conditions under which they developed them. And to keep up with our, our work, Substack newsletter, and we've also compiled uh, an HPPD information guide, which likewise will be released shortly and which we intend to kind of circulate amongst everyone in the psychedelic world in the world <laughs> uh, to just, yeah, because there's so much low hanging fruit about people's understanding of the disorder. So just kind of plugging that, that gap, uh, we think will be useful. Fantastic. So yeah, you can, you can send us any links you'd like us to share and we can put those in the show notes and direct people to that. Um, and then can yeah. you share your, your social media? Yeah. Uh, so my social media, I'm primarily active on Twitter, which is um, just at my name, Ed Prado. And I, I've been, well, my arm's been twisted a bit in this respect, but the foundation is encouraging me to make some TikToks <laughs> about HPPD. Okay. Uh, ho hopefully I will be a charismatic and charming TikToker. Uh, Absolutely. That remains to be seen. Mm. <laughs> that remains to be seen. Maybe. Maybe if you look at the Perception Restoration Foundation TikTok, you'll see some questionable videos of me on there soon. Fantastic. I look forward to them. Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> okay, cool. So thank you so much for being on today. We really appreciate you. Yeah, it was fun, guys. Thanks for having me.